I'm John Van Horn. I'm the director of the library company, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all here for this, uh, what seems to be an exciting program. It holds out the hope of being a very exciting program. Uh, let me start by thanking our friends and colleagues here at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. The response to the program this evening was, was so great that we ended up with a group that we couldn't possibly accommodate in our reading room next door at the library company. So early this morning we called over and, and HSP was able to, uh, to take us in, so we're very appreciative of that. We're really very glad to have an opportunity to take a retrospective view of the President's House controversy and to explore how we got to where we are now over the past eight and a half years. We're fortunate to have many of the principals with us this evening who have been involved with this story uh, from the very beginning, indeed whose work inspired the whole effort to document and memorialize the enslaved Africans, or perhaps more properly African Americans, who toiled just feet from where the Liberty Bell now stands. Phil Lapsansky, there by the, the door, is an almost 40-year veteran of the library company. And he hosted the first meeting when academics and citizens got together to talk about this issue in one of our meeting rooms back in April of 2002. He also conceived of the program today, uh, and I'm going to give him the podium in a minute, and he's going to give you a little background, and then we'll introduce the moderator and the three people on our panel. Uh, they'll each make some remarks, and then we'll uh, have a chance for some back and forth and, and some questions and answers. This panel discussion is presented under the auspices of the Library Company's Program in African American History, which has been generously funded by the Albert M. Greenfield Foundation. That funding has enabled the Library Company to build on its historic strength in this field by acquiring, cataloging, and conserving additional rare materials for our collections, offering research fellowships, and presenting public programs such as the one you're attending right now. So with thanks to the Greenfield Foundation and to all of you for joining us this evening, I'll turn the podium over now to Phil Lapsansky. Thank you, John, and to all of you who are here tonight, thank you. Um, I guess it was April 12, 2002, that uh, we had a meeting at the Library Company of Philadelphia, uh, and it was in response to what had been going on for several months. Uh, Gary Nash had been around earlier in the year. Uh, Ed Lawler's article had appeared in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in uh, January of 2000 that gave this explication of the President's House and noted the slave quarters and all of this. And at the same time was the Park Service uh, program to put up the new Liberty Bell Pavilion and absolutely ignore the uh, President's House situation, and particularly the slave quarters, which were destined to be quite literally the doormat to the Liberty Bell Pavilion. Uh, many of us in the historical community thought, wait a minute, uh, there's a, this golden opportunity here. This is almost a pie-in-the-face kind of moment for, uh, for historians and such, and uh, that uh, this, this juxtaposition of freedom and slavery was just couldn't be ignored. It just had to be explored. It just had to be developed. Uh, and in response to a call to get together, uh, about 15 folks showed up at the library company. Uh, some of them were panelists. Ed Lawler was there. Randall Miller was there. Lynn Washington was there. A few months later, Michael Cord came along from the uh, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition that got quite excited and motivated about championing the uh, 
uh, a memorial to the slaves at uh, 6th and uh, Market Streets. And uh, the result was what we have today. Uh, there is, you know, there is going to be a memorial there. It's done. It's finished. These little beginnings in 2002, we won. And tonight, I'm going to introduce uh, our panelists, uh, who were all around from the beginning and have been active from the beginning. Uh, immediately on my right is Ed Lawler, architectural historian, whose article uh, started it all in many ways. Sitting next to him is Michael Cord, a community activist, Philadelphia lawyer, who's avenging the Ancestors Coalition, involved that motivated the, uh, the African-American community to champion this issue. And next to him is St. Joseph's University history professor Randall Miller, perhaps better known as a perennial pundit on WHYY radio during election season. Uh, and he has been around from the beginning and moderating the discussion this evening, uh, also a veteran of that April 2002 meeting, is Lynn Washington, professor of journalism at Temple University and uh, award-winning columnist for the Philadelphia Tribune. And I want to turn this over now, right away, to uh, our moderator, Lynn. Take it away. Uh, thank you, Phil, and uh, thank you, uh, John, and also thanks to the Historical Society and the Library Company. And a great thanks to you for coming out and being here. We always find um, reasons not to come out. Uh, it's too cold or it's too rainy. Well, I guess today being too hot uh, might be one of those. So thank you very much uh, for coming out. Uh, as moderators, uh, I guess it's expected to say, we have a great program lined up for you this evening, and there will be plenty of good information put out. Uh, and we want this to be a part of you, too. So uh, we're going to have a question and answer session, uh, which we'll get to after our panelists uh, make some presentations. Uh, this particular program started out um, with a notion of some involvement of Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is a, uh, a day that uh, officially just passed uh, this weekend. And it's around the fact when uh, enslaved African Americans in Texas uh, found out that they had actually been freed uh, through the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, small thing, it was about two years late, um, two years after the actual issuance of this document is when they discovered that. Uh, nice little bit of history, but then the question legitimately is, well, what does this have to do there with this here uh, in terms of the President's House and the issue of enslavement? The reality is there is a nexus, and that nexus is information, and more specifically information that was denied or, or suppressed and or withheld. As with the information, the news about the Emancipation Proclamation being conscientiously withheld uh, from those uh, in Texas and other parts of the country, this story that you're going to hear, and you're going to hear in rich detail tonight, the story of the President's House and the story of enslavement within that house, and that has been a part of the fissure that has divided and pretty much soiled American democracy since the inception of this country, that information was withheld. Uh, Phil alluded to it by saying that when the National Park Service was getting ready to uh, create this new pavilion, the one that we now have that houses the Liberty Bell, there wasn't any notion of including these kinds of stories in there. Uh, 
and it's been an uphill fight just to get information out. Uh, so it's very important uh, that that took place. It's very important that it took place in a way that was successful. And now um, all Americans and those who come into America to visit this place uh, will now have a different view and a different perspective. And it's terribly important that we have these types of stories and these stories told because as we see from looking at the news, uh, there are efforts uh, in this country to suppress information. Uh, we have in Texas, ironically, an effort to rewrite history uh, in terms of the textbooks and things like that. And uh, at least the, uh, I'm not picking on Texas. I mean, there are plenty of other places, um, Arizona, uh, <laughs> and other places uh, where that information is suppressed. And despite the fact that Juneteenth is celebrated in, what, 39, 36 states, uh, Pennsylvania is not one of them. So there's some work to be done. But at this point, I'm going to step back and let these gentlemen here, who have the real story, uh, do the work. And we're going to have a, a presentations by each of them, and then I'll um, toss around a few questions. That's supposedly what I'm not so much good at, but trained at as a journalist. Uh, and then we'll have the uh, Q&A. So we'll start with Ed, and then we'll just work our way across the table. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lynn, and thank you to Phil and to John for arranging this. Um, my short talk is called The Battle of the Slave Quarters, because the slave quarters and the controversy of the slave quarters is the real meat of the President's House controversy. Uh, the Liberty Bell Center, to give you an idea, the front door to the Liberty Bell Center is between the word cow and house, so it's right there. So you are walking over the smokehouse and its extension as you go into the Liberty Bell Center. Now this was something that I warned Independence Park of uh, 2000, something like that, about um, um, two years before they broke ground on the Liberty Bell Center. And unfortunately their reaction was to cut off communication with me. Um, I want to give you an idea of the slave quarters of the proof for the slave quarters because there is some ambiguity but I want to explain the ambiguity and also how that ex ambiguity was exploited. First of all, the most famous letter, the fam most famous document about the house is a um, September 5th, 1790 letter from George Washington uh, to his secretary, Tobias Lear, outlining the ways that Washington wants the house customized to be suitable for the presidential household. And it begins, the house of Mr. R. Morris had, previous to my arrival, been taken by the corporation, that's the city of Philadelphia, for my residence. Uh, it is the best they could get. Uh, there is a room over the stables, without a fireplace, but by means of a stove, which may serve the coachmen and postillions. Postillions were um, people, men who uh, assisted on the coach and the horses. There is a smokehouse, which possibly may be more useful to me for the accommodation of servants than for the smoking of meat. The intention of the addition to the back building is to provide a servant hall, that's the long building you see beside the kitchen, and one or two, as it will afford lodging rooms for servants, especially those who are coupled. 
the initial plan that his secretary had proposed was that the husbands and wives be housed separately in dormitories by sex. And uh, Tobias Lear, who was here with his own new wife, felt that that was not going to work. <laughs> um, Tobias Lear wrote back to Washington um, on October 30th, uh, 31st, saying there is no room up in the hayloft or the, um, the stable um, in, in which the stable workers could be housed. And so he proposed that the smokehouse, which is the small room attached to the back of the wash house and the end of the kitchen now, be extended to the stables to make two good rooms. Actually, the smokehouse will be extended at the end of the stable and two good rooms made for the accommodation of the stable people. Now, the stable people consisted of either one or two, in, excuse me, either two or three enslaved Africans, Giles, Paris, and possibly Austin, and a white stable worker named Arthur, I'm blanking on his name, excuse me. Um, so that from the beginning, also in the, um, the accommodations, the discussions of the accommodations, Washington makes it clear that the races will be segregated within the house in their housing. Um, that, that was not the case for the two women who slept in the rooms with Martha Washington's grandchildren, but there were separate rooms for the black men on the third floor. We do not know, and we may never know, which of these two small rooms housed the white coachmen and which housed the enslaved stable workers, which I think is a good reason to say they are both slave quarters, or at least they should be treated that way. Um, Around the time of the sesquicentennial, so here we're jumping to 1926, there was a big fuss about the president's house. Uh, they built a replica of it down by the stadiums for the sesquicentennial. Um, and there was a big thing about where was Washington's office. Now the clues we had to Washington's office from his correspondence were that it had an east window and it had south windows. So the only, there were only two places in the household, on the house, as they understood it, where that could have been. Um, more just to the bottom, so the only place where you could have a south window and an east window would be this room, and the wash house here. This is not built yet. The wash house here, south and east. The other thing is with Washington, Washington's presidential office, this is where he met with his cabinet, this is where he was general, this is where the general business of the executive was done, was a former bathing room that Washington had the bathtubs removed from. So it was right off of his bedroom. Um, Washington's bedroom probably was over top of the back part of the kitchen here. And the bathing room on the first floor has an office as a second bathing room above it was used for the office. But at the time of the assessment of they assumed that this room was the only room that had the windows in the right configuration. Uh, Harold Donaldson Everline, uh, antiquarian extraordinaire in 1953, um, does a long piece on the president's house for the, uh, for the Philosophical Society, Historic Philadelphia, and he argued that the wash house back here was actually the bathing room. Okay, that wash house and bathhouse were the same thing. Um, and he argued that Washington's office was back here. What he didn't know, and what 
is still a lot of people don't understand is that the wash house and a bathhouse are different things. A wash house is a room for slaughtering meat. And you very often have a wash house and a smokehouse right beside each other. Obviously, you get a side of beef, you cut it up, there's blood everywhere, and then you take the pieces and you hang them in the smokehouse. But he, see, he used bathhouse and wash house interchangeably um, and unfortunately caused a great deal of confusion because of it. Um, in September of 2000, um, Independence Park wrote a preliminary report, a historical report on the President's House site in preparation for archaeology that was being done on the footprint of the Liberty Bell Center. The reason I say the footprint of the Liberty Bell Center is that federal guidelines did not require archaeology beyond the actual footprint of the actual building, meaning the, the reason I qualify it is the Liberty Bell Center has a 45-foot porch and Archaeology was not required under that porch because what was underneath was not going to be significantly disturbed. Um, in the archaeology, um, yes, um, in the archaeology, uh, they found a, an octagonal stone pit. This is the ice house pit, which is back here in the very up, uh, southwest corner of the property. Independence Park had argued that this building attached to the back of the kitchen was the ice house. We had this long description of the ice house, but we didn't know exactly where it was. Um, I found a reference in um, Hiltimer's diary to um, a, a, a wagon coming and bringing ice to fill up the ice house, but it said at the rear of, of Robert Morris's house. So, in the rear of the house being the rear of the just a little house for the rear of the whole property. That was settled by the archaeology in November of 2000. It was the ice Unfortunately, the, the final version of the historical report, which was written in August of 2001, didn't take into account all of the discoveries from the archaeology of eight months earlier. And it still argued... <laughs> Even with the discovery of the actual ice house pit, it's still arguing that this would be ice house down in front. Also from Washington, yes, oh sorry. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to have to skip a lot of stuff. In any case, there was a lot of misunderstanding, um, and that misunderstanding was actually exploited in some ways. Um, at one point, Independence Park argued that this whole Washington uh, directed the two rooms being built at the rear, at the south end of the circuit hall. Independence Park argued that this is a dormitory that contained both blacks and whites. Therefore, there was no slave quarters because people were housed together. Um, that seems unlikely from Washington's, from Washington's letters. Um, in January 2002, my article appeared, and actually my article was all about the architecture. Um, I included a very long um, footnote about the enslaved Africans, and then I had this, this postscript. An extraordinary juxtaposition will be in place when the Liberty Bell Center is completed, one which seems to have occurred by accident. 
The Liberty Bell is universally recognized as a representation of American freedom, but the bell once had a slightly different and very specific meaning. Until the mid-19th century, it was a relatively obscure object, simply called the Tower Bell or the State House Bell. It did not become famous or gain the name Liberty Bell until the 1840s, when it was adopted as the emblem of the abolitionist movement, and its inscription proclaimed liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, quote, as the movement's watchword. The Liberty Bell then became the powerful rallying symbol of the struggle to end slavery in America. This ancient meaning will echo as one approaches the new building on Independence Mall, the last thing that a visitor will walk across or pass before entering the Liberty Bell Center will be the slave quarters that George Washington ordered added to the President's house. Well, the, I'm afraid the part that I'm going to skip is all about how we got there. The real heroine of all of this is Mary Bomar, who wound up essentially saying, I believe this. Essentially, she, she came to trust Michael, and she came to trust me, and she came to trust our research. And it was she who decided at a December 8, 2004 meeting that these two, these two rooms would be marked exactly the way they are shown on, on two maps from the 1780s. Which, if you think about it, is where things should have started. You start with what is documented and go from there. She really, um, without her, the President's house would have stayed in the turmoil that it, it had been in for several years. So I'm going to turn this over to Michael Court. I'm afraid I can't give you my whole thing, but uh, you got the gist of it. Thanks, folks. As you have heard and will hear, uh, there's so much information. We could have one program per night with each one of these individuals. We'll next have uh, Michael Court. Thank you. Imagine right now, in 2010, that some Martians come from outer space, and your brother is sitting next to you, your sister is sitting next to you, your father's behind you, your mother's in front of you, and these Martians take your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, up into outer space somewhere, and they get a different language. They live on a new land. They're forced to accept a different religion, a different culture. They lose their limbs. They lose their sanity. And many of them lose their lives. And this goes on for hundreds of years. I mention that at the outset of every presentation about the issue of slavery because I don't want it to be just an academic pursuit, an intellectual pursuit. This stuff is real. Black people lost not only their land, they lost their language. They lost their culture. They lost their religion. They lost their family. They, made, they lost everything that made them human beings. And the amazing thing about America is that black folks are not holding a grudge about that today. Most folks, had they gone through that hell for that period of time and are still on the same land where that took place, there'd be so-called terrorism every day. But apparently these Africans, African-Americans, were forgiving people. When you talk about the issue of slavery, if you do the math, you say, okay, 1619 to 1865, that's about 246 years. 
Okay. And if slavery ended in 1865 and we're now in year 2010, that's 145 years. So 246 years of enslavement, 145 years of so-called freedom. But it really wasn't freedom in 1865. In fact, freedom really didn't come to the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. So now we go from 1619 to 1964, and if my math is correct, that's 345 years of either de jure or de facto slavery. 345 years. And doing the math again from 1964 to year 2010, we're talking about 46 years. So you've got these black folks that for about 346 years, 345 to be exact, in a condition of slavery, legal or factual, but slavery nonetheless, and no real freedom until 46 years ago. So when you talk about slavery, you have to make it, you have to contextualize, you have to make it real to people to the extent that you can make it real. I'm here to talk specifically about attacks involvement in this. Attack is an acronym, A-T-A-C, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. And attack came into existence back in 2002. There was a newspaper article here in Philadelphia in 2002 which talked about the move of the Liberty Bell from 5th and Market, a half block west, to 6th and Market. And we in the black community said, interesting, but not really relevant to us. In that same article in 2002, it talked about the move, the Liberty Bell, a half block west, but it also talked about the fact that that new site, 6th and Market, is where America's first White House stood. Now, back then it was called the President's House or the Executive Mansion or the Robert Morris Mansion, but it served in effect as America's first White House. So again, we're in the black community saying, the move the Liberty Bell, no big deal. America's first White House, no big deal. But then the third thing we find in 2002 is that that Liberty Bell, moving from fifth to sixth at America's first White House, George Washington held black folks in brutal bondage at that site. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I went to the best school in Philadelphia, Masterman. We went on class trips like every year. And despite the fact that I went to one of the best schools in the city, not one history teacher told me about slavery at that site. Not one social science teacher told me about slavery at that site. Nobody told me about slavery at that site. And I used to wonder why it was that the white kids were so ecstatic about seeing the bell and touching the bell. But for the black kids like me, it was just another day out of school. That was fine with us, but still, it was just another day out of school. But once I began to find out about the real history of this site, of course I was relieved and enlightened, but I was also angry. I was angry because had I known then, as a kid at Masterman, what I know now about that site, I'd have been happier than the white kids who went down there. Because I would be able to say that people who look like me, whose skin is like mine, whose lips are like mine, whose nose is like mine, they helped build what we call America. And people say America is a great country, and America is a great country. But think about it. If you had a company, and that for 246 years, you didn't have to pay your employees a dime, you'd have a great company too. So America is a great country because of slavery, because of what it was able to do for those at least 245 years, or if you do the math from 1619 until 1964, you're talking about 345 years. Let me 
talk about why slavery is so important to the site, because we're calling it the President's House, and this diagram lays it out very well. And it is officially the President's House, but when this group, ATAC, attacked, when we talk about the site, we call it the President's House slash Slavery Memorial. It goes together. Why? Because slavery permeates the President's House. If we talk about George Washington enslaving black folks at that site beginning in 1790, and that's the official or that what we call the White House, 1790, well, there's slavery there. George Washington owns or enslaves 316 black men, black women, and black children, and brings nine of them to Philadelphia and holds them there at that site. So slavery is there in the Washington White House in Philadelphia. Let's take a step back. Where did he get the house from? He got it from Robert Morris. Who was Robert Morris? A major slave trader of the firm Morris and Woolley. In fact, we know Robert Morris to be the financier of the American Revolution. That's a great thing. But why didn't they tell us where he got the money to finance the American Revolution? Being a major slave trader. Okay, we got George Washington, slavery at that site. We got Robert Morris, blood money from slavery. Well, where did Robert Morris get it? Well, the house was owned by the estate of William Masters. Who was William Masters? He was the mayor of Philadelphia in the 1750s. Who else was William Masters? One of the biggest slave owners in Philadelphia. So his estate built that house. So you got George Washington enslaving black folks there. You got Robert Morris getting the money from the slave trade. And you got the estate of William Masters constructing the house. So when you talk about the president's house, you just can't talk about it as the president's house. You just can't talk about it as the executive mansion. You can't just talk about it even as America's first White House. You have to talk about the people who lived there, the people who struggled there. Because for me, that's one of the most important parts. So anytime we talk about the president's house, you have to include the story of slavery. In the research that we were able to do, and much of the research came from people like Ed Lawler and Dr. Shirley Parham and others, and we found fascinating stuff. In fact, in the uh, magazine, Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, they asked the TAC to write an article about this, and I believe it was sometime in September of 2005. We wrote one, and it's called The Black Eye on George Washington's White House. The Black Eye on George Washington's White House. And if you want to see it, I mean, it's perfectly footnoted. Everything is documented. And if you want to download a copy of it to see a copy of it, just go to our website at avengingtheancestors.com. And it lays out all of this stuff. It talks about the fact that George Washington treated these black folks as less than animals, that they were horribly closed and they were ragged. And, in fact, there was a Polish diplomat who came to the Mount Vernon estate, and he was aghast at the condition of these black folks. Now, you might say that George Washington was a great patriot, and maybe he was. You might say that George Washington was a great general, and maybe he was. You can also say that George Washington was a great president, and again, maybe he was. But can you be a great human being when you hold 316 other human beings in brutal bondage as slaves? Thank you.
and we'll just move right along. Randall. Well, I'm going to be less eloquent because uh, after following Michael Kors, uh nobody can beat that. And I, I am going to talk about a very strange group of people, though, today. Um, historians, somewhat of an occult group. Can you hear me all? Uh, somewhat of an occult group. Uh, we have our own standards, etc., and we were involved in this process. Um, almost a year ago, historian David Kennedy, writing the New York Times Book Review, observed that, and I'm quoting, we all live in history. Some of us make it, others of, uh, excuse me, some of us make it, others are made or broken by it. Most try to make uses of it, usually by ransacking the past for analogies to, the, to explain, or I might add, even to justify the present, and then he goes on, or to predict the future. And, he concludes, many of us screw up in trying to do all that, one hopes you won't do so now. As historian, uh, excuse me, as history has pushed aside religion uh, in the Western world in setting the moral compass and defining values, we care about the judgment of history. But not the way historians insist on, on it in their standards of being supposedly objective and fair, but rather as an instrument of nation building or identity affirming. And as such, history has become a battleground whether in culture wars, political imperatives, racial and other group identities. Amid all the kinds of contestations over public history, which is what we're talking about, public history, of course, is where most Americans learn or engage history and where they also want to uh, assert their own particular history. But amid all the kinds of contestations over public history, from Gettysburg Battlefield to Little Bighorn to Enola Gay, one thing historians have come to appreciate and one hopes to try to convey is the need to contextualize the past as necessary in order to understand that past. Now, this is not to suspend moral judgments, but to understand that past generations often held beliefs and acted in ways that might be, by current standards, stupid, horrific, unconscionable. What to do about that is a constant in a world where we are pressed to assign the judgment of history on others. Will this foster arrogance or humility on our part, or what? Such questions swirl around the President's House controversy as well they should. That said, let me make a few comments about part of the process whereby historians engage and sometimes even define the President's House issues and offer a few considerations on where we might go with such interest and engagement. The President's House is a place. Uh, it's a space. Although the physical structure doesn't exist, the space exists. Uh, but it's different than other kinds of presidential places. They often are sacred places. Other sites, like the proliferation of presidential libraries and homes and what have you, are intended uh, to be places where Americans might realize the civil religion of America as the land of the free. And pilgrimages to such places are often intended to affirm that story, to foster patriotic veneration. This President's House proposes not so much to affirm, but to challenge the unquestioned supposed truths of America as the chosen people. And it will do so by the power of place, 
first look where it is, situated by the Liberty Bell, ringing out the possibility of thinking about freedom. Remember, it's the abolitionists who gave it the name and the purpose, which was to end slavery. But a location between Independence Hall and Constitution. Independence Hall, the Declaration of Independence being written there, and a, a, a universal promise. The Constitution, some would are, uh, uh, celebrated the National Constitution Center, uh, where supposedly uh, slavery was uh, enshrined, at least in part in that document, limits upon freedom. Uh, so the place itself is very useful, right in the middle. There's also a place, of course, where you know, two presidents resided uh, for most of their tenure in, in office uh, and during a formative period in which uh, the nation was grappling uh, with the definition of freedom, etc. And it's also a place that's real. Uh, and there's nothing more than the power of real, which was demonstrated when the archaeological digs were done there, and tens of thousands of people needing very little panel text needed only to look at that place and realize that some important things had happened there and that they wanted to know more about them. Now, historians understand... Um, and, excuse me, and understood from the beginning of the issues relating to the President's House in Philadelphia uh, that this offered the most unique and powerful place to bring before the public the fundamental issue defining America, namely, what did freedom mean? This is a question with a past, but it's also a question with immediate consequence for the present, for it is really a question about what can and does freedom mean to us. This is an issue that entails not only investigation, but obligation to tell the truth about the past and to, uh, and to and for ourselves. Historians seized hold of the President's House because that place with the people there, George Washington, founding father, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen, well, perhaps, <laughs> uh, certainly a, a founder, John Adams, uh, who followed him in the presidency, but also because of the households there and the retainers, free and enslaved. And all the people who came there or were affected by actions there, all this gave meaning to freedom as the American people set out in their course of self-government and with uh, their great conceit insisted that all the world was watching this great experiment in freedom. Historians understood especially that the very public place, potentially a sacred place, could be a great stage or classroom where Americans and any visitors coming there would have to grapple with the paradox of American freedom, namely, as Edmund Morgan had taught us 25 years ago in his seminal book, and as we college professors have been trying to do for the last 25 years in our books and college courses, namely, that the freedom of many in America has been built on the unfreedom, even enslavement, of others. Freedom thus has been contingent, partial, contested, and still incomplete. Now for some very brief comments on historians in action. The people who, yeah, go-go people. Uh, in these comments, I'm not going to offer a history of the President's House uh, controversies or any origins accounts of who did what first. Such accounts are already in the making, and for uh, historians and uh, people interested in history, uh, one might well look at Gary Nash's work in a book, Slavery and Public History, The Tough Stuff of American Memory, uh, a book itself that grapples with a lot of these larger questions, and his latest book, Liberty Bell, that recounts uh, much of the story. Or uh, one might also go to ushistory.org, a remarkable trove, which is a gathering for virtually anything written uh, relating to the President's House, also with many visuals, etc., and if you just want to follow the train of that, getting documents and insights and what have you, uh, it's all there. You can even get the article that uh, Michael Cord talked about. Um, 
there can uh, there already are competing narratives about who did what, where, and why, etc. But that's not my purpose here. My purpose is very brief, and it's a deal with what I'm going to call six C's, if you will, which is sort of like my grade <laughs> average in college. But uh, collaboration, consensus, content. In context, I see seven, but seven is a better number than six, come to think of it. Control, conflict, and considerations. Uh, and let me start with collaboration, because that's really the big story in terms of the historians. As was suggested by Philip Sansky in his introductory remarks, uh, gather, there was a gathering uh, at the library company right next door, uh, perhaps the most appropriate place, of people who were concerned about uh, the, a lost opportunity to deal with a troubled history uh, that was made possible by the move of the Liberty Bell Pavilion to the new Liberty Bell Center. There was a concern that there was going to be no archaeology. There was a concern that there was going to be no attempt to deal with the President's House and most importantly to deal with what the Liberty Bell symbolized and what movement into the new Liberty Bell Center would, would promise and that is forcing people to consider these contradictions that I've already suggested. And, and rather than just let this go, a uh, group of historians, public historians, academic historians, journalists, heads of in, uh, important institutions like the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, the Library Company of Philadelphia, suggested that we could do something. And perhaps drawing as well on uh, histories of activism, doing something meant getting a strategy. And getting a strategy talked then about how to be organized, how to get mobilized, how to advertise. Uh, that instead of giving up, that we could offer something. And Essentially what the historians, and I'm calling historians, uh, agreed upon there were two things. One is that there had to be collective action, and the second thing is that they would agree to meet again to assess the situation, sort of like the First Continental Congress. They're going to have collective, a collective action, and then they're going to meet again. And the collective action took the form of using electronics, creating a listserv to bring more and more people into the conversation, preparing press releases and what have you about this to engage the press, and I see Stephen Salisbury's here, Lynn Washington also wrote on this, as did others, to keep the, the issue constantly before the public, to hold meetings and encourage public meetings, to use ushistory.org so that it be a constant reference, and most important, more than anything else, to get information, 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 that historians would be allowed at the table, that the National Park Service might open its door and let new ideas and interest in if we provided the one thing that they demanded, and that was information that was verifiable, that was credible, that was useful and that was necessary, which is essentially what the historians did and still do. Now, out of this emerged a consensus, and that was that the constancy to keep this issue before the public and to have the public engage with that issue. But controversies did develop, and they developed over content, which was really controversies over context. And that is, how much should be told about the larger stories related to the president's house, that is, about the presidency's, or should the focus be, I don't want to say narrower, but more on the troubled aspect of it, which related, of course, to slavery. And out of this, one could say, we came, came an appreciation of the different perspectives and methods that historians and the public have. And even as we've engaged one another, we've also contested with one another. And I'll give you one example of that, and there are many that one could give. Uh, well, two. One is naming rights, because Michael brought it up. But one of the things about power and control is what you get to call something. And is it the President's House, or does the President's House slave memorial? Or is it, as some in public meetings said, it's not the President's House, it's not a slave memorial, it's a, it's a house 
of horrors, uh, which suggests something about perspectives. Related as well as one story at the last major public meeting from the Oversight Committee that's dealing with it that struck me, and if I've heard said the story, I said it to Coxie too good, I, I apologize for that because you'll have to hear it again. Uh, one gentleman stood up there and he kept calling this place a house of horror, but he also made an observation that in referencing in the text panels, they talked about Hercules' kitchen. Hercules was the chef. And Hercules controlled the kitchen, supposedly, because of his genius as a chef, and he brought the materials in, etc., etc. Eventually, he would run away. Uh, and this, this gentleman said, this was not Hercules' kitchen at all. Hercules owned nothing. And at that moment, you could see the fundamental divide that separated the professional historian from a public. The professional historian is a whole literature that talks about black agency, of slaves creating their own community, of literally owning their own space, as it were. So they could conceive of Hercules' kitchen uh, as being his. But from a public perspective, it could not be so, because Hercules could not own anything if he didn't own himself. And that divide has never been resolved. And so I'll close, because I got my time up here, by <laughs> arguing that historians do believe in information. Uh, we're very optimistic. But are we ready to accept all the risks that the President's House entails, which includes giving up control, perhaps, of the narrative? And there will be multiple narratives, not just the ones we've heard. But we could say, and I close with this, that the President's House experience has shown the power of collaboration, the power of consistency and constancy, the power of conviction, and has taught us one thing, and that is that we can never again be complacent or um, well, never be complacent. I'll close with that. Complacent about our own history. Thank you very much. Randall, uh, Mike, and Ed, thank you very much for your presentations. Uh, we're going to move into the next phase of our programming, and that's uh, some questions uh, of the panelists. Uh, given the time constraints, uh, I know many of you gentlemen left uh, information that is of value and import uh, in your paperwork, so please feel free to integrate that into uh, the, the questions here. Um, one of the questions that, that uh, keeps swirling around this, um, and let me just raise it as to, to get this portion going, uh, why do you think there's been such resistance, um, either in the public or in the park service or wherever, uh, such a resistance to memorializing the President's House and, and the slave quarters? And uh, what does that say about America? Oh, and please use the um, microphone there. Yes. Well, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, slavery is America's dirty little secret. And nobody ever wants to talk about that. Um, in fact, the Park Service folks here, Independence National Historical Park, knew about this entire issue since September of 1974. September of 1974. How is it that the Park Service officials, Independence National Historical Park, would have known about this but wouldn't talk about it? I'm sure it was because it was quite embarrassing and uncomfortable. So this controversy stems from the fact that we found out about this stuff, we started talking about this stuff, and either they were embarrassed about us disclosing it or in denial. And I think that there are some who are probably still in denial. But to answer your question quite succinctly, slavery is America's dirty little secret. So to the extent you can sweep it under the rug, you do that. Well, I, I can't add anything to that except that slavery also relates to race. 
and Americans have had a lot of trouble talking about race, especially given the history of race in America. Slavery was a racial institution as well as a violent institution. And it's not, we might have improved, in fact there are many who argue we have improved, but uh, 30 years ago was a somewhat different context in terms of people's willingness to talk about race and to inject those kinds of questions into places that supposedly represented the whole people. And I alluded to some of the controversies, whether it's Gettysburg Battlefield, and that's the reinterpretation of the Civil War, not just to deal with the actions that happened on a battlefield, but why were people fighting, and they were fighting because of different views about slavery, whether it was good or bad for uh, the nation. Uh, same thing is true about who would own uh, Little Bighorn, another controversy, and races related to that as well. Who whose history gets told, and, and that's really the issue here. So I think that that's part of the reasons why in the 1970s the Park Service was going to more than shy away from this because it really didn't want to deal with the implications of it. Um, in telling this story, uh, many of the luminaries, I mean the, the icons of American history have been shown in a different light shown in a different perspective. Does filling in uh, some of these forgotten gaps in, in history uh, demean the luminaries in any way? I mean, George Washington, is, his name's been bandied about. Uh, no relation to me, of course. <laughs> Although uh, Negroes are the only ones that carry that Washington name. That's a whole other story. Uh, but does this in any way soil? It complicates things. It complicates things. And... Um, Perhaps there was a time when people didn't want a complicated history and didn't want to engage and learn and be challenged by things. I think that things are changing. Um, uh, we're coming up on the 150th anniversary of the Civil War and all the battlefields from that. Fifty years ago at the 100th anniversary, I think there were still people whose grandparents had fought in the war who had a personal connection to it. Um, and fortunately, another 50 years, I think that uh, the reactions will be far less um, severe and less personal. I think the, the, the distance and the, the time is helpful. The higher, edu higher level of education is helpful. And the recognition of diversity, of the, the value in diversity and the responsibility of teaching other histories um, is very different than it was in the 1970s. America has certainly created what I call historical deities. They've turned Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington and these men into godlike creatures. And because they did that, they don't want to talk about anything that doesn't make them seem all-knowing and all-perfect. I recently did an interview with Philadelphia Magazine, and I made the point that history doesn't lie. So if you are true about history, you simply tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and let the chips fall where they may. The final thing I'll say is that when you talk about the whole notion of America creating these deities, it's totally fictionalized. We learned in elementary school that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and never told a lie and all that kind of stuff. But when we do the research, we find out that when he came to Pennsylvania and brought the eighth and then the ninth enslaved African descendant, that he began to violate Pennsylvania's Gradual Abolition Act. And basically that law said, 
simply stated that if you keep a so-called slave here in Pennsylvania, bringing him from out of state to in state for more than six months, he can petition or she can petition for his or her freedom. So what did George Washington do? He began to rotate the enslaved African descendants, hold them up to, say, five months, 29 days, take them across state lines, and then bring them right back. Well, we learn about him chopping down the cherry tree and never telling a lie, but never hear about him circumventing Pennsylvania's gradual abolition law. And then he went from being a law skirter to a lawbreaker, because in 1788, the Pennsylvania legislature filled in that gap and said, hey, if you play tricks like that, you violate the law. So first, George Washington played tricks, skirted the law, then the law was amended, and he broke the law. So as I said at the outset, history doesn't lie. Just tell the truth. Periodically, uh, we like to uh, demystify our heroes and defrock our priests so that uh, this isn't the first time that Washington et al. have gotten comeuppances for other things they did than the, quote, great in the sense that they were perfect. Um, one could argue that it not only uh, tells the truth and complicates the story, but actually can be quite reassuring to people uh, that these were human beings. Uh, and instead of putting the distance between you and such people, uh, because they are these marble icons, etc., that hardly seem real, it's quite possible, and there's some evidence for this, that by, in effect, showing them in their fullness of uh, not just the things that they might have done to advance the cause of the nation, but the things that they also did for themselves, uh, that they become not only more real and make history more vibrant as a consequence. So uh, it, it might be, and there are historians certainly would argue that this is a very healthy prospect. I, I hope this next question is um, far enough away from previous conversations to make it a real question. Uh, but what value, uh, particularly what lasting value, do you see in finally telling this story uh, of the President's House and the slave quarters? And when I say what value, what value does that have to the general public, those who don't have a particularized interest uh, in history or things historical? Well, I'll give two answers. The first answer is that it helps African Americans specifically, because I gave the example of myself being a black kid at Masterman, coming to the Liberty Bell, and making no connection to it. In fact, feeling embarrassed, like, why would I be here? My ancestors were just slaves here. But then once I found out the history, I found that they weren't just slaves. These were human beings who happened to be enslaved and human beings who helped George Washington build America into what it is. So it helps African Americans in that regard. But it also helps all America because I think that when white folks realize the great accomplishments of Africans in America, then they'll look at us differently. Right now, many of them will simply see us as slaves or descendants of slaves. And when they look at why is it that black folks tend to be at the bottom of everything, economics, education, high incarceration rate, all of this stuff, if they understood the history of slavery, then they could see how yesterday can cause what's happening today. So telling the truth about history helps blacks with their pride and it helps whites to understand and respect. Right 
one of the interesting things about this when people come there, and I think that already showed up when they had the archaeological uh, dig open, and if you just, and I don't know if some of you might have actually come to that and just hung around. Uh, <laughs> no panels to speak of, just very brief, and people engage in conversations with, uh, I mean, I, I talked to somebody from Denmark, I talked to somebody from Colombia, uh, I talked to people from other parts, and there was just a general conversation. One of the themes that emerged from all this, totally unscientific, but one of the themes that emerged from it, from my perspective, which I heard from so many others who were there, um, was that this raised the question of what didn't we know and why didn't we know it, which is actually a good question, because then the next question is what can we know and how might we come to know it? So it actually really quickened interest in history, rather than the sense that it's a bunch of you know, one damn fact after another uh, and one white guy after another, etc. So I want, from the perspective of any people who needs to have a history, and we have to have a history to be a people, uh, our contested history might actually be our greatest strength, just as those argue our diversity is actually our greatest strength. You're constantly getting new ideas and new energy and the consequence, the possibility of new, new direction. Related to this was also new perspectives. Uh, historians play around with the thing called new social history, which is an attempt to look at the historical experience not just from the top down, the kings, the queens, the presidents, and so the CEOs, but from the bottom up and sideways, etc. It requires all new kinds of methodologies to try to capture those experiences, often from people who didn't leave diaries and a lot of correspondence and these kinds of things. This site is doing that already and will do more of that, of help people realize the perspectives. And then from that, that there is not just one story that's going to tell it all. And that means, again, to repeat myself, that is an invitation to start looking for other stories. So it's a very dynamic process that is, already has come from this and one hopes will continue. Uh, if I may, I'd like to quote um, Gary Nash and Dwight Pekathley, who in the... Um, up until five years ago, was the chief historian for the National Park Service. Um, Gary read my article on the, on, the, on the physical design, on the architecture, quite early because he's a board member of HSP. Um, and he was touring the country uh, promoting First City, his book, and spent a good deal of time on his interview on uh, WHYY FM um, talking about the president's house and how important it was. Uh, and then he gave a lecture, which included the President's House, where you challenged him to write something together about doing something about the President's House. But he also got Dwight Pekathley involved. And Dwight Pekathley wrote to Martha Akins, who was then superintendent of Independence Park. And I apologize that this is a compilation of Gary's... This is a quoting from a speech of Gary's. but So it's lots of... about. Two-thirds of it is Dwight, and about one-third of it is Gary, uh, so that I'm not going to go quote-unquote, quote-quote, but the potential for interpreting Washington's residence and slavery on the site, he wrote, meaning Pekathley, presents the National Park Service with several exciting opportunities. The president's house, he prodded again Pekathley, should be explained and interpreted, and the juxtaposition of slave quarters, George Washington's slave quarters no less, exclamation point, and the Liberty Bell provided some stirring interpretive possibilities. 
The contradiction in the founding of the country between freedom and slavery, he continued, becomes palpable when one actually crosses through a slave quarters site when entering a shrine to a major symbol of the abolition movement. How better to establish the proper historical context for understanding the Liberty Bell than by talking about the institution of slavery and not the institution as as a generalized phenomenon but as lived by George Washington's own slaves. The fact that Washington's slaves Hercules and Oni Judge sought and gained freedom from this very spot gives us interpretive opportunities other historic sites can only long for. This juxtaposition is an interpretive gift that can make the Liberty Bell experience much more meaningful to the visiting public. We will have missed a real educational opportunity if we do not act on this possibility. If I could just step to the side a minute with with the question. Um, Mr. Cord explained how he became involved in this, but if Ed Randall could expand a little more. You're credited with the President's House article and it started, but how did you get involved in this? I mean, what? I... Were you just walking down the street one day and said, I feel something, you know? I got angry at Independence Park. Um, if you recall, Independence Park had, uh, through the, through the mid, mid early, early to mid 1990s, had more than a dozen public meetings on the recreation of Independence Mall. And the conclusion was they were going to move the Liberty Bell to the second block. And so it would have been three or four hundred feet farther away from Independence Hall. That was announced in early 1996, and it absolutely bombed with the public. Uh, the Pew Charitable Trusts hired Robert Venturi to save the mall from Independence Park. And, and at this point of rethinking the mall, um, it occurred to me that the President's House should be part of it. Uh, Independence Park held public meetings on September 30th and October 1st, 1996. There were three people who stood up in the audience and said you should include the president's house in the redesign of the mall. Independence Park just seemed to dismiss them. And my thought was, that's a really good idea. It's good for the country. It's good for this city. It reinforces that Philadelphia was the capital for 10 years. It brings Washington and Adams here to be interpreted in Philadelphia. This is so good for the city. Someone should do something about this. Independence Park wasn't doing it, so I started doing it on my own. I'm just one of the many, uh, so nothing dramatic, but uh, a historian of a particular generation uh, that grew up understanding what Howard Zinn, among others, suggested, and that is that history is not just a study of the past, but history, you have an obligation in history to try to inform the issues of the present. Uh, And um, so when this issue emerged, and emerged through Ed's article uh, particularly, but also at that meeting that was suggested where Gary Nash uh, was talking about his book, but people were really interested in the president's house and the presence of enslaved people there and the possibilities, uh, I foolishly had said to Gary that he should do something about this uh, famous man that he was and write uh, an op-ed piece, uh, get the public uh, irate involved, and the deal was he would write it if I would co-author it with him. Uh, and 
so that was it. But the other part of it was uh, somebody who was in this room, and I don't see him right now, he might have absconded, uh, Phil Lipsansky, uh, among others, and we called essentially a meeting and met at the library company where the Junto did the same kind of thing. What's a, there's a civic problem, uh, the Benjamin Franklin mode, what can we do about it? And rather than be passive, let's figure out how to solve that problem, and as I alluded to, that's the ad hoc historians, uh, uh, aptly named, if you will, um, that, uh, that emerged from that. So that's basically that brief history. One final question, because the best questions tonight will come from you. So I'm going to give you that opportunity. But do you gentlemen see any parallels between the collaborative efforts, if I could use one of those six C's that uh, <laughs> laid out, do you see any parallels between the collaborative efforts across you know, races and occupations uh, on this particular project with past efforts in, in Philadelphia? So much of what we've accomplished here, not only in Philadelphia but in the country, have been these collaborations. I guess at this point, I'm just asking you guys to give a little history <laughs> of some of the things that have happened here. Well, I'll certainly defer to the experts, but speaking as an activist, this is a new thing to me because usually you have the academics, the professors, the intellectuals dictating to the people what the history is. Very rarely do the people get a chance to say, hold it, I don't think that's right. Let's double check this. So from my standpoint, in terms of the collaboration, this is a uniquely different opportunity, and I hope one that's replicated throughout, but this is the first I've heard of it where the activists can sit at the same table with the academics and get the credit they deserve. I don't know, I'm not a native Philadelphian, so I'm, I'm off the hook partly here. Uh, I don't know of anything of this scale, certainly nothing of this significance, that has brought together uh, so many different kinds of people. And as I also suggested, uh, posed so many dangers as well, because you bring so many different interests together, uh, you might not find uh, agreement. But um, through it all, <laughs> one of the most important things is that people have found ways to agree on the most fundamental question, and that the story must be told. <laughs>